1: Welcome to the program. I'm laughing because we they surprised us. We're about four minutes early going, so if you're tuned in, you may hear a bunch of people tuning on right at four o'clock, but that's okay. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On For Life, program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about stuff going on in your life. All we need you to do is call us with those questions, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing Questions at com, where you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I could use some prayer. Um, I'm doing tonight uh, one of the ugliest Bible studies, uh, most distasteful, and um, I was laughing with my producer before the show started, saying, you know, this is like the worst telenovela in the history of the world. It's finishing Genesis chapter 27, and um, I don't know a way to make it interesting. I certainly don't know a way to make it fun, but it's important. There's just so messed up. um, I think a lot of people are going to recognize themselves in sort of the -the behind-the-scenes shenanigans. So that's tonight. I just pray that God can in some way use this Bible study uh, to reach people's hearts. We've got to be honest with the Lord, and nobody in this whole chapter is being honest. They don't like each other. They don't trust each other. Uh, they don't trust God. That's evident. And they're just making an absolute mess of things, and the family dynamic is a little bit overwhelming. So thank you in advance for your prayers. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in the studio with me on the date day edition of the program, and um Ladies, you'll be encouraged. I promise you Paula will make sense tomorrow. So all of that is on schedule for now. Let's go to our questions while we await your phone calls. Our first question comes from Jennifer. It's an easy one. She says, does the Bible permit women to be pastors? Jennifer, the answer is no. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 makes it, abundantly clear in the correct context. Women cannot occupy positions of leadership in the church. It's that simple. Um, When I say positions of leadership, having authority over men, leadership in the churches needs to be male leadership. Not because men are smarter, not because men are more spiritual. Usually the the opposite of that is true, Um, but just because this is the way God said to do it. It's his church, so we have to do it. Now, Jennifer, that begs the question, why then does um, do we see so many women pastors in churches? And the answer to that question, Jennifer, is because we don't really care what the Bible says. Now, I know that's harsh, but the truth is we if we don't want to do something that the Bible tells us to do, we just pretend like it's not there oh, he didn't mean it, or, well, that was for a different culture, a different time, uh, when clearly it's not. And I get this question quite often, Jennifer. uh, If you are in a church where the woman is a pastor, um, you are um, getting ripped off. It's that simple. Not because she's not a good teacher. I keep saying this. We've got wonderful, truly gifted women teachers here, even at our church. But they counsel one-on-one with people. They teach women's groups. Um, uh, th- that's that's what God says is their role as it relates to teaching so uh, again so I'm not misunderstood um, women are just as gifted as men there's only this one role that they're prohibited from occupying in the church of Jesus Christ I repeat this in the church of Jesus Christ and it's not our church to do with what we think is culturally acceptable um, and we've got to get used to that so uh, if you go to a church where the woman where a woman is the pastor or is a pastor um then you're in a really really um out of order church and you need to need to change so I hope that makes sense to you thank you here's a question from jeremy he's a pastor on when did jesus' disciples get saved or born again um, they were saved by faith uh when they met Jesus when they followed him. Um, Again, just like Old Testament, um, people got saved by by believing the promises of Messiah, by believing the Word of God, Um, and then by by holding on, persevering through the difficult times, simply because they had the faith, they understood who Jesus was. Now, um, when you're saved, when you're truly saved, you're born again. But in their case, there was an incident after Jesus was resurrected, he said to them, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. That's when the Spirit of God came in them. Remember, before that, they followed Jesus. They hung in every word that he said and and, um, he protected them and he took care of them. But it wasn't until they were sealed that they understood the transaction. And they were really then kicking off a whole new uh, dispensation in the church where rather than Then them following Jesus, following the law, doing the best that they could, uh, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit would come. Jesus said, receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 1 says that when that happens, we're sealed with a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. So that was the moment that they became aware of it. But they were saved from the very beginning when they made a decision to follow Jesus. Uh, Many of them left um uh, valuable lives, uh, profitable lives in the world, and left everything behind and followed Jesus. I was thinking, Jeremy, when I was looking at your question when it came in, about Elisha, um, when when you know he'd been chosen by God to be Elijah's replacement. But but he for ten years was sort of a student or a disciple of Elijah. Now in first Kings chapter nineteen, His moment where he he was all in with with the Lord was when he burned all of his farming equipment, very valuable, his oxen. He killed them and butchered them. And he left everything. He sacrificed a lot to follow Elijah on this 10-year course. And so what he was... Doing, I'm 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 leaving everything to follow you, Jeremy. That's when you're born again. Now there are cultures, Jeremy, where the idea of being born again isn't truly understood. The Orthodox community is one. Uh, Coptic Christians, you remember, um, several years ago, now we saw the Coptic Christians uh, from Egypt. They were uh, beheaded by ISIS uh, on a beach. Um, no doubt, those men were born again even if they couldn't have explained it to you. So uh, that's what happened for Jesus' disciples. And, uh, of course, that happens for us, Jeremy, when we have surrendered everything to Jesus, when we've repented of our sin and asked to be forgiven of our sin. And, by the way, Jeremy, this is a really, really good opportunity to to share with people. When you're witnessing or you're trying to share Jesus with people, um, one of the best questions to ask is, not are you a Christian? But, but are you born again? I mean, Jesus twice said people who aren't born again won't make it to heaven in John chapter 3. So, so that's sort of the, the, the term that cuts everything right in the middle. So I hope that makes sense to you, Jeremy. Thanks a lot. Three four zero ninety is a question from Alan. May I have your thoughts on systematic theology and the best approach to it. Um, Alan, I'm not a huge systematic theology guy. Now let me explain why. Um, when I got saved, I had no church background. So, I mean, I, I, I didn't know any hymns. I'd never opened a Bible. Uh, I didn't have any traditions that were burdening me. Uh, I, I just, I met Jesus and things changed. And so my systematic theology developed from what I call a biblical theology, and by that I mean I just read the Bible and believed what it said, and over years started sorting it out, but I never went to somebody's own systematic theology and tried to figure out how to make that work for me. And I really believe with all of my heart the best approach is, is just developing your own systematic theology um, from what the Bible teaches us. I mean, it's easy to see when you're reading the Old Testament that, that uh, for example, the law is given to Israel, the Ten Commandments, and then later the rest of the law that weren't given to us. Now, if you can put a systematic theology over the Bible, you can you can sort of distort that. But the truth is, all you have to do is read the Bible and take what it says at face value. And so I became a dispensationalist um, in the sense that uh, God has always dealt with different people, different times, in different ways. And so you learn that. So you, you, you find the systematic theology uh, that works but it has to be consistent with biblical theology. And, Alan, that's what I've always done. Um, You know, there's a a bunch of really well-known systematic theology books out there. Um, um, Several of them that are very popular are written from a Calvinist systematic theology. Uh, and, And if you just read the Bible, it makes no sense. But if you take that systematic theology and then interpret the Bible based on what that systematic theology says, well, then you can twist everything and change everything, and it's really a dangerous approach—a um, very fruitless approach to figuring out what the Bible. So, not a fan of systematic theology, other than that which develops as you really learn to understand what your Bible says. Let me add this to Alan. Uh, I think, and this is just one pastor speaking, I think people spend way too much time, especially at the beginning of their walk or when they're curious and and trying to find out what the Bible says, I think they spend way too much time on finding out what people say rather than just reading what God said in His Word. I don't think anybody ought to even open a systematic theology until they have a familiarity with the Word itself. I think you've got to read it, you've got to turn pages, you've got to understand um, all 66 books in, in terms of their relationship to, to, to each other. Um, and, and I think once you kind of get that overview, then you can start digging in a little bit. But I think the most important thing is just to read it, soak it in, think about it, Pray about it. Uh, but really dig in and find out what the Bible really is all about. And I think if people would do that, it would really clarify some things for them. Ellen, I don't even advise people to get study Bibles. Um, there's some really great people out there who've written study Bibles, which I'm sure are fine. The problem with the study Bibles is that we're too eager to read the interpretation of something. We'll read the verse and we'll go right down to the the explanation, rather than just sort of chewing on what the Bible itself says and wrestling with that. And I think wrestling is such an important part of developing in the Word. And I realize that we like to go to the answers. It's sort of like getting the questions to the test before you take the test. I think we got to take the test first. And if people will do that, it will really, really help advance their understanding of the Word. So I hope that helps, Alan. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Janet. She asks, Would you perform a wedding ceremony for people not intending to file legal paperwork? Janet, the answer is unequivocally no. I simply would not do it under any circumstances. There's two reasons. One, um, we are to be um, uh, observers of the law, we're to show respect for the law. And and so we we do that, and you know, the the law says that you go fishing, you need a license. When you get married, you need a license. You need it to be um, accepted by the governing authorities. The the other thing that we need to understand is that by not doing so, often their reasons for not doing it demonstrate a decided lack of faith in the God they claim to believe in. You know, I've had people come to me and ask me if I would do a wedding ceremony because, well, if they get married, and especially true with, with uh, people in my age bracket— well, if we get married, then our Social Security benefits are going to get cut, or my retirement or my pension is going to get cut. Um, uh, I'll stop getting uh, spousal support. Um, and, and, you know, I so said, wait, wait a minute, you're selling Jesus out? For how much per month? I mean, what's it worth to you? And because they, they have no faith, they're really not able to trust the Lord to honor the decision they make to be obedient and I just think that's problematic, Janet. It really, really sets the 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 wedding, the marriage, off on a bad foot. And uh, I just I would not do it personally. And I've been asked several times to do it. And often, when I've been asked to do that, um, the people just found another way to do it, found somebody else who would do it. Um, and you know, I, I I just I don't think that is a good witness for Christians. So I hope that makes sense to you. Here is an anonymous question. My phone's been quiet this week. You guys are more interesting than I am, so we'd love your calls. This is anonymous. He says, I know you're pro-life, but my question concern concerns when a Christian is okay to stop receiving medical treatment for a terminal illness. Um, you know, anonymous, I don't see any conflict between those two things. I'm pro-life in the sense that abortion is murder and And all Christians have to be anti-murder, period. Um, For the life of me, I I don't understand how someone can even claim to be a Christian and be pro-abortion. I I don't get it. I'll never get it. You can call it women's health. You can call it women's rights. You can call it whatever you want. But the truth is, it's murder. and, um, And somebody who proclaims to be a Christian needs to choose. Who are you? And that has to be based on who Jesus is to you. So I don't see a conflict. Um, when a Christian can stop receiving medical treatment for terminal illness, I think that's between them and the Lord. I, I don't think there's any inherent sinfulness in, in um, uh, 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 do not resuscitate, a DNR. I don't think there's any inherent sinfulness if somebody uh, has cancer, for example. And the the treatments are are, are killing them. Um, I don't think there's any sinfulness in saying, you know what, I'm just gonna leave this in the hands of God. I'm gonna just trust him and he can take me at his time. So I hope that makes sense to you. I'm gonna sneeze and that's why with the break and we we'll do it again. I can tell the allergens are coming in again, so that's that's what's going on here. I apologize. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, um, I, I don't want extraordinary measures taken to keep me alive, and I, I'm sure God is fine with that. Um, um, we've had people who um, were diagnosed with cancer. Some uh, took very aggressive treatment patterns, and others... Uh, who didn't take any treatment at all. And again, I think that is an individual decision, Romans 14, 23, decision, anything not of faith is sin. And so Anonymous, uh, I think that is between you and the Lord. Now, uh, I think in a case like this, we who are the, the, the Christians who, who have the terminal illness, I think we've got to consider um, the feelings of others, our, our family members, our spouses, Um, I think it's a decision that that needs to be made um, so that that you and your spouse can agree or you and your children can agree. So I think all of those things come into play, but ultimately the decision is going to be made between you and the Lord. So I hope that makes sense to you. Let's go to line one, and we have Ray calling from San Antonio. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Hello, Pastor Ron. Are You doing all right today,
1: Ray? I'm doing well, except for I got this this sneezing fit from from something floating around in the air. But I'm doing good. It's good to hear from you.
2: Well, uh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I, I I don't believe it's mountain cedar yet, but it's on the on the brink of <laughs> yeah. coming into our lives. Um, <clears throat> I know mold has been in there, giving me fits. But anyway, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I wonder, on your first question that you picked up, you get that one so many times. I wonder, is there a way that people would be able to go to like a, you know, most often ask questions part of uh, the the app or website or whatever and, you know, kind of pick up on some of the things that they're puzzled about but you've gone over a million times and I don't know if that's possible or not and on the same vein um, why do you think that so many people are puzzled by that um, and and do they are they just... Do you have that many brand new listeners that have never heard you say anything before, uh, or, yeah. or, uh, you know, I just don't know what to think of it, and it was kind of bugging me, and I was thinking, well, that's not very, very kind of me to <laughs> get kind of irritated at that sort of stuff, but I don't know, it, you know, yeah. what, how to how yeah. to deal with that when it keeps dropping up, you know it's like you have this piece of furniture, and you keep stubbing your shin or toe on it, and you just leave it right there and do it again and do it again and
1: but you, you, anyway, you, would,
2: you would think um, that
1: you would think that you would move it pretty soon, yeah, Ray, I get that, so uh, let me let me explain the the nat- the nature of our show is such that uh we're going to get asked the same questions repeatedly. Uh, as as new people come in. You know, a radio program, people are, are fishing across the dial. They're, they're, um, um, uh, somebody tells them to turn into this somebody who's listened. Hey, I got a show on the radio that you'll like, that kind of thing. So yeah, we've got new listeners coming in all the time. And all of them, of course, are at different places in their walk. And so, um, again, by the very nature, and I had to understand that and accept that, going in so uh, that that is going to continue Um, the reason that those questions keep coming up is because people see uh, a practice that is contrary to what they read in the bible and uh, this is a question you know the the question used to be the question we get all the time was questions about tongues and and it was because they go into a church where tongues was being abused everybody was speaking in tongues and and so they would say, well, well, they say that's right, but but Pastor Ron said this, or the Bible says this, and um, and so they, they're they're looking for a little bit of direction. And in this particular case, uh, you can go into an awful lot of churches. You can turn on Christian television and see a whole bunch of women who who have um, uh, anointed themselves as pastors in violation of the word. And, um, and of course, we live in a culture where there is a big push for equal rights, and this is seen as being unfair. Um, and so th- they're just kind of wrestling with um, the the tension between, well, I know the Bible says, but this is what everybody's doing. And so in this particular case about women pastors, it's a question that we're going to continue to get. Um, Ray, the, the question that you had about uh, a frequently answered question Uh, Section on the website or something like that. Um, We just, honestly, we don't have enough time. That could be done, actually. Um, But we don't have enough time. You know, I teach three Bible studies a week uh, in addition to doing this radio show every day. And there just isn't enough time. Uh, I would have to take a lot of our resources here to have somebody who's doing that full time. Now, we do have a log, our producer here, Uh, is logging the questions so we can make references to those questions. But, um, um, you know, there's so much information on the Internet in terms of answers to these questions that uh, I don't think we need to duplicate the effort. So does that make sense to you, Ray?
2: Yes, it does. And I was just curious about you know, having such a bad attitude toward that because I don't have a radio show, <laughs> but I like listening <laughs> to your answers. <laughs> and uh, so at any rate, if you, if you have a, a way that I can deal with my own uh, uh, demon on that, that would be good. And uh, there was something else. Uh, oh, gee whiz.
1: Well, you can think about it and call me back. Let me just say this, Ray. Just remember, give grace to people. And when people are asking the same questions repeatedly, um, give them grace because they're, they're curious. And, and I love curious people because they're the ones who dig in and get answers. They're the ones who will hear what I say and then they'll go dig in and try to find out for themselves to see, well, does the Bible agree with what Pastor Ron just said? And that is a really, really good thing for people to do. So uh, just give them grace, and 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 start looking from God's perspective. When somebody just gives their life to Jesus, um, and they've got all kinds of questions. Remember when you were a new believer and all the questions that you had. Uh, they're just going through the same process. And one of the things about sanctification is it never changes. We're all going from the Bible calls it glory to glory, one degree of glory to to the next degree of glory. And that's just the process of growing in our walk with the Lord. So, thank you, Ray. Appreciate it very, very much. Okay, we got just over three minutes for this half of the program. Let me see my next question. Um, Psalm twenty-seven. I, you know what? I don't know if I can do that one in three minutes. So I'm going to go to the next one. This is a question from Anna. Um, she says, "A friend told me Jesus could look like any of us if we need Him to." How can that be when he was a Jew? You know, Anna, I think that what your friend was saying is Jesus is so personal that we can personalize him. Now, we can't change his character. We can't change his nature. His nature. We can't go sort of editing through our Bibles. Well, I don't like this part, but I like this part. Um, but, but, but the idea is Jesus is so personal. You know, in a, a, a European culture, um, in, in our culture, uh, things are slowly changing, but most of the pictures of Jesus will will portray him with light skin and light brown hair and and a very neatly quaffed beard. Uh, if you were to go to Africa, most of the, the, the pictures of Jesus that, that you could put on your wall uh, would picture him as a black man. Uh, at the time Jesus lived, the racial background and the diversity of people in and around Jerusalem was, was significant. And, and so people would, would, would look like they came from all different parts of the world. Uh, but the idea here, Anna, is that Jesus can be so personal that he'll meet you where you are. Um, I, I've talked about the book The Shack many times in the past. I used to get all kinds of questions about The Shack. Um, uh, the Shack portrayed him as a, as a, a black woman. And, um, and and it was a very personal book, non-fiction book, but but um, the uh, author of The Shack, in his own experience, had been abused by men in authority in his life, and he had a really hard time uh, imagining a, a, a loving father figure. That's a problem we have in our culture all the time because fathers have failed so miserably. Fathers abandon families. Fathers abuse their kids. Fathers are just mean. They're jerks. And so when we talk about a loving father figure, uh, it's hard for some people to really, really understand. And so Jesus reveals himself to you in a way that you can understand so that you can accept him and draw near to him. Um, So yeah, in that sense he can. But make no mistake, when, when Jesus walked this earth, he was a Jew, a very average or an ordinary looking Jew. Uh, His features would have been very Jewish and Middle Eastern. Uh, His skin could have been light or very dark. More likely, his skin was dark. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, there was nothing about him that that said he was God physically just by virtue of looking at him. Uh, And we need to understand that. And yet, again, Jesus is so personal that he'll meet you where you need to be met. So, Anna, I hope that answers your question. Well we have thirty minutes left in the program today, three four zero ninety-five eighty-five or toll-free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. This is the word to stand for life. We'll be back in two minutes. See you on the other side of the break.
0: The word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron
1: Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show, 340-9585. Remember, Paul is going to be here live tomorrow for the date-day edition of the program. Uh, here's the question I didn't think I had time. This is from Bruce. Uh, it says in Psalm 27. Uh, we're told to wait on the Lord. Other passages talk about being still and knowing he is God. How do I apply those verses in my life? Bruce, uh, all I can say is there's nothing harder, uh, and and I'll, I'll make this very personal, there's nothing harder for me than waiting on anything. Um, I, I, from the moment I got saved, I've been in a hurry. Um, you know, I'm working hard not to walk ahead of God, but the idea is, you know, I wasted so much time, I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait. And yet, um, you're right. Not only in that psalm, but other places we're told to wait on the Lord. Jesus said, um, my sheep know my voice, I call them by name, and they follow me. And we're too ready to rush out and jump. Hey, come on, Lord, hurry up, keep up. But, but it's a very important principle. Waiting on the Lord. It's not enough to know the will of God. But you've got to know the timing of God as well. And so you wait on the Lord. And it just means you wait until you get directions before moving out. You wait until you're certain you've got a conviction on something where you can step out by faith. But we wait on the Lord, and He does the fighting for us. He uh, sort of makes the way for us. And and while I said it's hard, uh, it's something that's very important. And the same principle works with being still, And knowing he's God, I think that's a matter of faith, Bruce. Um, You know, We hear that all the time here at Calvary Chapel. People say, boy, the Lord told me to be still and know that he is God. I think sometimes we get a little too cavalier with that. But the idea is just be faithful where you are. Be productive and fruitful where you are. And understand that God will take your hand and lead you and guide you in the direction that he's going to take you. I think the encouragement is not to get ahead of God, not to do what seems right to you, not to let your feelings or your emotions dictate what your next step is. This is especially important for husbands and fathers. As the spiritual head of the household, we're accountable to God to make sure that when we go home and tell our families, the Lord said that, that one, we're going to be obedient. They're going to see us being obedient. But two, we're going to be consistent in that. We're not going to try and get tired of it in a couple weeks and then go look for something else that the Lord said to do. We're going to be faithful. And God will take care of your family. God will take care of you. But we've got to be able to convince our families that when we say God's leading us to move or God's leading us to do this or leading us to do that, um, that, that that's an informed, a prayerfully informed decision, and it's certainly the will of God for your lives. And then He will uh, accommodate the the, the, the requests of, of, for instance, your wives um, um, so that they can partner with you in the decision. It's really important. And Bruce, I, I've said this before in this program, but, um, you know, when when we came to San Antonio, uh, Paula didn't want to go. I was excited just to know anything that the Lord wanted me to do. But, but we had kids. Uh, Paula just found this Christian husband, and she didn't know um, what was going to happen next. And suddenly I come home and say, God wants to go to San Antonio, Texas. Um, but I told her we weren't going to take a move Towards San Antonio until she was ready to go as well. She needed to hear from the Lord, and He was very faithful to do that. So, uh, I think that's the best answer for that. Thank you for the question, Bruce. Let's go to line one and talk with Terry from San Antonio. Terry, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: It's always a pleasure. We got little Arabella in the back. She's listening, but no big questions. But I heard something uh, two days ago. I wanted to see if you heard the same thing about uh, alien uh, interaction with us, our race, our you know humanity, and uh, 84, I think it was 84-year-old head of the space agency for Israel. Great credentials, great everything, well-respected, that I've got nothing to lose by telling the truth now. And uh, it might be the time to share. Do you think there's any credibility to something like that?
1: Yeah, you know, Terry, they're not saved people. I'm convinced. First of all, there are no aliens. The Bible says Jesus said we're his friend, and a friend tells a friend everything. So we have all of the information. There's no other life forms out there. There's no, uh, God doesn't have another plan of redemption for for life on another planet. Uh, We are the center of everything from God's perspective, Uh, and we need to understand that. And I think there are demonic apparitions. I think certainly demon spirits are going to try to convince people that there are aliens out there. Anything that they can do to get people's minds off of uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, So I think, no, there are no alien life forms out there. Um, Now, for me, it means we're just wasting all the money that we're spending on space exploration. But it's not my money, so they're, they're free to do that. But but the one thing that you have in common, all these people who claim to see uh, space aliens or claim to have UFO encounters, they, they're not saved. And because they're not saved, they, they don't have a, an anchor, a, a compass point that will keep them in a steady place. And, of course, that is the Word of God. So um, I think... That alien abduction might be sort of a, a plan B for the devil when it comes time for the church to be raptured well you know they yeah. weren't fit so aliens came and got him but Terry but, um, um, I'm, I'm really confident that there are no aliens out there uh, And one of the things that always kills me we're the best thing God ever made Ephesians 2.10 says that we're the most beautiful thing he, he created uh, man on the sixth day And said it was very very good and yet whenever you you talk to somebody uh, about aliens uh, they always picture them as way more advanced than we are and um, that's simply not possible so if our god is a powerful god and we're the best thing ever made there's nothing out there that is better Mm -hmm. or more advanced or more creative than we are Mm -hmm. so Um, I have a very strong, strong position on that uh, because I've just seen too many people get caught up in these um, conspiracy theories about all this stuff. And that's just a distraction, I think, engineered by the devil.
3: Well, I think that was a good answer. Thanks. A lot of people hear
1: this. Hi, Arabella. It's good to hear from you. Hi. Hi, Hi. Hi. Will I see you tonight?
3: (laughs) She's got their energy back after a shot. So, uh,
1: yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah, thank you. Very interesting as we close out this year. What more could 2020 hold? But the (laughs) credentials, everything that they stated in this, and uh, (laughs) some other things. But, you know, I I find it funny. And and, uh, so we'll stick with your answer.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Terry. God bless you. Thanks for calling. appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Jimmy calling on line two from San Antonio. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Jimmy just dropped. Okay. Uh, Let me go to the next question then. William says, does God have a specific person for me to marry? Um, William, um, yes and no, and I'm not not talking out of both sides of my mouth there. Let me explain. God knows who you're going to marry, and so yeah, that's pretty specific. But it's not like God chose that person, or it's not like God um, from the very beginning said, "Okay, William and this person, I'm going to I'm going to put them together." So it's not like that. It's just that God knows, and uh, I think you know the the question we had a moment ago about uh, uh, being still and knowing that, that God is God. Um. um I think sometimes we get so impatient and we step out ahead and we end up just marrying because we're lonely or because we, we're tired of being alone and, um, uh, and, and we make a lot of mistakes. And, and because uh, the idea of who you marry is so important, um, it's one of those things you really have to wait for the one that, that God allows to come into your life. Again, it's not His design it's not like when I was born and Paula was born a year later that God said, okay, now Ron and Paula, they're going to be together. Okay, pair them off and then we'll, we'll move on. It's not that at all. But what it is is that, that when you're walking in the will of God, William, um, ostensibly you're a Christian, when you're walking in the will of God, when you're trusting him to bring a person into your life, then he's going to work things together for your good. and Whatever you're called to do. And when God brings somebody into your life, it's going to be somebody that you'll know when when you meet them or as you fall in love with them. It will be somebody that will enhance the ministry that God has for you. It will be somebody who will complement the calling that God has on your life. Likewise, you will complement the calling that God has on her life. And the two of you will be able excuse me, the two of you will be able to um, agree to follow Jesus together. And, and uh, you know, I always imagine God just saying, oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. But in terms of a soulmate or something like that, uh, that's a very soulish or worldly position um, to take. So, William, just follow Jesus, and that person will come into your life. And it'll be the one you can't live without. I like that. 3409585, here is a question from Lori. She wants to know, why are there some divorced men who are currently pastors when the Bible is clear about divorced men being disqualified? They must be the husband of just one wife. Um, Lori, I'm not sure you understand the husband of, of one woman. Literally, in the Greek, it's a one-woman man. Now, remember, when the Bible was written, um, a lot of times people had multiple wives. That would have disqualified somebody. Um, but but even in Jesus' time, with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, the big debates about divorce. Um, there was a school of thought that said you can't divorce at all. There was another school of thought that you could, said you can divorce uh, your wife for any reason if she's displeasing to you. You don't have to have any grounds other than, well, I'm not pleased with her. And the Jews were always arguing about that. And Jesus, of course, in Matthew chapter 19, addressed those very things. Um, but... Um, um, the idea of a one-woman man in a modern culture is somebody who's committed to the woman they're married to. Uh, If somebody was divorced before they were saved, well, that sin is wiped away. If somebody was divorced after they were saved, if they confess their sin, then they're forgiven and purified from all unrighteousness. So there's there's no prohibition against divorced men being pastors. However, if a man, well, he is a pastor. Remember, James said, not many of you should seek to be teachers. We stand a stricter judgment. Um, uh, too much is given. Much more is required. Uh, a man who is a pastor who divorces his wife for um, um, unbiblical reasons uh, or a man who can't manage his own household well uh, is certainly not qualified to be a pastor so um, I know men who have been divorced who are pastors and they're wonderful pastors they are remarried and doing doing wonderfully in their walk with the Lord and their churches are being blessed by God so the fact that we were divorced for, before we became pastors doesn't disqualify us It's more a reference to uh, our faithfulness in our marriage and our commitment to one woman and walking together with her in the service of God. So that's what it means. It's not, uh, 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 you said it's clear about divorcemen being disqualified. That is a misunderstanding at all. You know, I I think sometimes, Laurie, we forget to apply grace to certain situations. Again, I'm not excusing any of the pastors. There's been several of them over the years who committed adultery, or who left their wives for somebody else. Uh, A pastor can never do that. If that's the case, they need to step out. All of my staff pastors here at Calvary Chapel, every one of them knows that if their marriage goes sideways, they are going to be asked to step out while they work on their marriage. That's how important the institution of marriage is to the Lord, and, and we want to be sure that that uh, our men are above reproach, so they need to step out, work on their marriages, let God put it back together. Uh, Then there's a time they can come back and and potentially be a pastor again. But um, um, just the idea of, I'm going to divorce my wife because I love somebody else. That heart, that carnality would disqualify somebody from being a pastor. And when you see this happening and there are no disqualifications, it just gives you an idea, Lori, about how carnal uh, the church that we're talking about really is. So I hope that makes sense to you. James says, why is it wrong? And then in parentheses, he said, I heard a recent sermon you did. Uh, Why is it wrong to use cussing um, when cussing is just the way people talk now? I don't think we should be stuck on that or stuck up on that, he said. Um, James, it's wrong because we're told not to use coarse language. Uh, It doesn't matter. The whole world doing all kinds of things uh, that that are acceptable in the world but aren't acceptable to God. I am personally absolutely mortified when I hear a pastor swear from the pulpit. I mean, that's one of those places. And uh, believe me, I'm not overestimating my own importance or the importance of what I do. But one of the things that we all of us ought to hear when we step up to that pulpit and open our Bibles, we got people listening to us, we need to sort of, in that little voice of God, we need to hear, take off thy sandals for the ground you are standing on is holy ground. When we go into the pulpit, James, we represent not ourselves, we don't represent the culture, we represent almighty, holy God. And so here's the thing, cussing displeases God. It forces us or causes us to misrepresent Him. So my question to you, James, would be, why is it a small matter to you to sound just like people in the world and misrepresent God in the process? I think we all of us ought to be stuck upon that. Let me tell you a quick story, James. Um, um, I used to cuss a lot before I got saved. Uh, I mean a lot. I was a... Um, baseball player in college. I I, I, I was a car dealer. Um, Language was just, you, you use language. And I used it a lot. When I got saved, almost 30 years ago, I've only cussed one time. One time in 30 years. Happened to be at Bible college. I was talking to a young man. And when that word just popped out, and it was a, it was an accident, I didn't think about it. I was teasing, think God was just keeping me on my toes. But that word came out, and you should have seen the look on that young man's eyes. And He was asking me for help. I was an older, more mature man at Bible College. And this young man, who has now become a pastor, by the way, wonderful guy. And he looked at me like he was shocked. He was disappointed. And I was so broken by that. I was so broken by that. All I could do was cry. And I mean, I really, really cried. And I resolved, I, I, I began praying, Lord, don't ever let anything like that happen again. I never want to embarrass you again. And I asked him, I said, I know that stuff starts in my heart, Lord, so clean my heart but help my brain and my mouth before the words actually formulate and come through my brain and out of my mouth. You you check me there, Lord. And I can honestly say, James, um, that was in 1970, 1994, rather, and I have not sworn um, since then. Uh, it's just not who I am. And, and you know, I say all the time on this program, just be with Jesus. If you're with Jesus, you can't use that kind of language It is a very, very, very big deal. And pastors who do it um, ought to be ashamed of themselves. And Christians who do it ought to repent. So here's the question one more time, James. Why is it such a little matter to you? Do you want to sound like people in the world? Or do you want to sound like a child of God? You really need to examine your heart on this one, James. Marty says what is the relationship between faith and obedience which is more important? Marty um, I can only address this generally because I'm not exactly sure why you see a tension between faith and obedience. I think if you have faith in God you will be obedient. Jesus said if you love me you will obey me. Um, so I don't, I don't see a tension between those two things. Um, but um, um, obedience proves you have faith, proves your faith is real. James says, "Faith without works is dead." If if you're not being obedient, then your faith is weak at best, maybe non-existent. Um, so the the relationship, I think, is more of a, a of, of an indication that you really do belong to Jesus, or perhaps that you might not belong to Jesus. So I can't see which is more important. Um, they, they both are. You know, if, if um, I had a question last week, somebody said, well, if I give, but I'm not, um, I'm just giving because I'd feel bad if I didn't. Um, you know, he's being obedient, but his giving is without faith, and without faith we know it's impossible to please God. Cain offered a sacrifice just as his brother Abel did. The only difference was one was offered with faith and the other one wasn't. So, uh, again, I think um, if you have genuine faith, you will be obedient. If you are not obedient, then I think we need to really question our faith. So, Marty, that's a very important question to ask. Let the Holy Spirit really examine your heart. Here is Raymond. This will be the last one we get today. I think we're inside of under four minutes now. Raymond says, uh, Pastor Ron, how does the worship leader create an atmosphere of worship? And is his job mainly to prepare people for the teaching of the Word? Um, Raymond, let me deal with the second part first. His job is to worship God. Um, you know, if I'm teaching tonight, we're going to have time of worship before that. But it's not like they're my warm up act. Their job is to worship God and give those who are listening to them a chance to worship God as well. Worship is really, really important. With regard to creating an atmosphere of worship, I think that's really overplayed. Um, What I tell my worship pastor and people on the team is to make sure that they can um, sing those lyrics. with sincerity in other words they're not singing one thing and living a life that's completely different Um, I don't think we need to create an environment I think we just need to worship Uh, I think those and and it seems that you're being groomed to be a worship leader somewhere I think your focus is to be more on Jesus than the music Uh, do well do it as best you can have plenty of rehearsal but make sure Jesus is at the center of it make sure your motives are good and then God will use you. But everybody who comes into church is responsible for their own atmosphere of worship. I can come in and be angry and I can sing the songs and and, and end up being a huge hypocrite. Um, but I can come in and say, you know, Lord, examine my heart. I really want this to be a, a time of worship. And I think that's your only responsibility make sure that you're walking with Jesus, to make sure that you are worshiping in spirit, and in truth. And when you do that, uh, I think you're going to find a whole bunch of people in the audience who are going to be worshiping with you. Um, I think, Raymond, worship is one of the undervalued things that we do. Part of it is our fault because we've got too many people performing in worship instead of just worshiping God. So don't worry so much about it. You know, another thing you could do, Raymond, is go talk to a worship leader at your church, and, and uh, kind of let him share his heart with you if he's worshipping uh, as unto the Lord if he's worshipping in spirit and truth uh, then you'll learn something but uh, no your job isn't to prepare people for for me tonight um, uh, if you're the worship leader here at Calvary Chapel um, your job is to just worship you know people are going to come in here tonight uh, for some it will have been a good week for others it will be a really tough week um Some people have monumental problems and they need to be able to come in and worship the Lord even in the middle of their difficult problems. So Raymond, I hope that makes sense to you. It's um, almost borders on obscene when we do everything that we can to work up an atmosphere of worship. Well, thank you for tuning in today. This has been The Word to Stand Up for Life. Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. I appreciate more than you know that you take the time to tune in. With us May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.